Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm Rob Hopkins, your host, your imagination catalyst, bearer of fresh thinking, new ideas and hopefully previously inconceivable perspectives. This is your imagination podcast or rather your collective imagination podcast or radical imagination podcast, the it will actually be our imaginations that save us podcast. Here the future is not just an intellectual debate, rather we allow ourselves to go there and take a walk around and test it out. And we hope you enjoy our chat today, and if you do, you would earn the ceaseless adoration of everyone you meet by becoming a subscriber to this podcast at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. It means you get these podcasts the day we release them, plus our Ministry of Imagination bonus episodes and so much more besides. It's where the party is, really. Come join us. In their book, Imagination First, Eric Liu and Scott Noppe-Brandon wrote, it's time for our society to get going on an intentional, dedicated and systemic effort to up our imagination quotient, the real IQ, at home, at work, in school, at play, in our community life. The scale of the challenges we face as a society are complex and varied. The IPCC report that came out earlier this year said that unless there are immediate, rapid and large-scale reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, limiting warming to close to 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees will be beyond reach. Immediate, rapid and large-scale reductions. Let's imagine we were actually able to do that in the time available to us. The complete reimagining of food, travel, housing, the economy, a retooled education system, a new sense of shared and collective purpose. It would feel like living through a revolution of the imagination. But what would it actually feel like to live through a revolution of the imagination? A question that leads us to our question for today's episode. What if we were standing on the cusp of an imagination age? <laughs> So let's meet our two guests who we're delighted uh, have joined us here today. Rita J. King believes in applied imagination for creative, pragmatic problem solving in the imagination age. She's EVP for business development at Science House, a strategic consultancy in Manhattan. She's a writer, researcher, speaker, designer and artist. And as a futurist at the National Academy of Sciences, Science and Entertainment Exchange, she invents novel technologies, characters and stories for film and TV projects. She's a resident research fellow at the Center for Engineered Natural Intelligence at UC San Diego. And Gabriel A. Silva is a professor in the Department of Bioengineering in the Jacobs School of Engineering and the Department of Neurosciences in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He holds a Jacobs Family Scholar in Engineering Endowed Chair, is the founding director of the Center for Engineered Natural Intelligence and associate director of the Kavli Institute for Brain and Mind. In addition to his academic work, he's a regular contributor to Medium and to Forbes. Welcome both to From What If to What Next. It's a delight to have you both here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to start, if I may, with the exercise that we always start this podcast with. So I'm here with my time machine lovingly assembled from parts of an old fridge, a microwave and some very smart repurposing of bits from an air traffic control system I bought on eBay. Last week, Ben, my producer, and I took it for a spin and decided to travel back in time to watch Charles Dickens writing Great Expectations. But to be fair, it was actually really boring, just him sat writing, so we came back again. So today, we've set it for 2030 rather than 1859. So I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes and to get comfortable and to invite you to do the same thing at home as well and to imagine that you're travelling forward through time to 2030. 
The 2030 that we arrive into isn't paradise or some kind of utopian delight, but it's the result of everything that could possibly have been done being done. So it's now a far more low-carbon, just, fair, creative, beautiful, delightful world, one which feels to everyone like the early stages of an imagination age. It's been a profound transformation. I'd love you to describe it to us. What does it feel like to live at the beginning of an imagination age? How does it taste, smell, look, feel different from the 2021 we left behind? Rita. Well, now I'm afraid I'm going to bore you as much as Charles Dickens did, because in 2030, I see myself in a writing cabin, just like Charles Dickens <laughs> <laughs> writing. So I, I think it'll be just as boring probably to watch me write. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting what you what you say about how is it different, because as a futurist, um, so many of the projects I've worked on have had 2020 as their headline instead of 2030. And one of the things I've often thought is the the ideas are there. Their ideas are abundant. It's the it's the will to to make them happen. And so the first thing I wonder is in in this competing marketplace of ideas, how did we decide on the ideas that we were going to put our weight behind? And it's hard for me to fantasize about something until I until I think about how that process happened. But but once I get there, I I do see basic human dignity and connectivity as the, the guiding principle. And, um, you know, I often think about how nobody asked to get born, nobody opted into this world, but here we are. And I think in a, in a more <clears throat> humane environment where we focus on imagination, we're also focusing on the creative power of the human brain and mind. And that's what brings Gabe and I together. You know, just this idea that, you know, we all have brains that are these three pound ish machines telling us a story about who we think we are and governing the way we experience reality. And at the same time, there's what interests me is, you know, the imagination in that brain and and, and how it becomes a world. So this, this vision you describe about 2030, to me, if I'm applying imagination to it, I can only really say what I think are the things that are important, which is, you know, really nature, deep connecting with each other, um, raw candor as a, as a human value, and then just basic human dignity. I think if we focused on those things, um, I think that imagination would flourish. Thank you. Gabriel? So picking up on the theme of 2030 being sort of a, uh, uh, just part of a continuum, right? Not, not a destination onto itself. And um, sort of where, where Rita started, and I'll give a um, no surprise, maybe a more sort of uh, technical perspective, if you will, on on some of the things that may um, may help enable sort of that vision that Rita kind of described. And um, I mean, I think there's some <clears throat> 10 years is short, but it's also long enough that, you know, um, progress in, in areas of, of medicine and continued progress in computation, some fantastical topics, uh, you know, things like, uh, like, like quantum computing, right? You know, when, uh, if those things ever come online, they will, uh, they will be absolutely transformative. And it's kind of fun to think of, you know, of, of technologies that will have that kind of impact. To Rita's point, there's, there's, good and bad, right? The, the technology and the science itself is agnostic. And so it's policy is another sort of major, you know, area where I think we, we struggle, you know, and, and where we'll be in 10 years will be interesting because a lot of this stuff is happening too quickly for, you know, for, for policy really to, to keep up. But, um, 
yeah, I think there are going to be some spectacular areas of, of just scientific and technological progress um, that uh, uh, is it's just part of a continuum. Thank you. Thank you both very much. And um, in for both of you in your work, what do you, what does this idea of an imagination age mean to you? And how would we know that we were living in one? Um, Rita, maybe you could start us off with that. I first started thinking about the imagination age in 2006. And I had spent several years by then as an investigative journalist investigating massive systems, um, including the relationship between corporations and the government, the nuclear industry, energy, And at the same time, I had an accidental side business writing stories about people's lives uh, for deeper understanding in families. And those two things gave me a much more balanced view of the role of the individual in society. And I was on the beach with a little girl and she told me I was the only adult who made her feel like her imagination didn't have to die when she grew up. And I... I immediately outlandishly promised her I would dedicate the rest of my life to imagination. And I didn't know where to start, but I knew that we were between the industrial era and the coming intelligence era. And in the industrial era, things are very tangible and heavy. And, you know, we had conveyor belts and factories and you punched into work and our brains are very good at making sense of industrial era products. And we're headed into the intelligence era where The things that we're creating are very nebulous, and yet they have a much bigger impact. So algorithms, people don't understand what algorithms are or how they influence our lives, um, how companies create them uh, or control them, Um, data, machine learning, a lot of the things that Gabe mentioned a minute ago. You know, so we're headed into this environment where the products are nebulous, the work styles are nebulous, things are chaotic and fast. And so it seemed clear to me that we needed a transitional concept in between in order to make sense of the transition from industrial era concepts into um, intelligence era concepts. And imagination seemed like the perfect thing to me because we need imagination in order to look clearly at the path we're on and understand what needs to be deprioritized and where we should put our focus. Because as people, we have very strong confirmation bias toward continuing to do what we've already done. And we're extremely resilient which means we adjust to even the most outrageous things very quickly and we lose our ability to make changes because we're just used to what we're already dealing with. And so we need imagination in order to see more clearly the path ahead. And so I feel like the first era of the imagination age was from 2006 until March of 2020 when the pandemic started. And in, in, in my view, that's, that's when it started. And, and, And I think most of us realize at that point we're in the future together rather than the future being some nebulous thing that is yet to happen. And so I think we're in a new era of the imagination age now. And I think we'll know we're in it when we are able to contextualize our ability to influence policy and the way we organize as people because we choose issues and focus on them rather than arguing about the minutiae of should it be this or should it be this should it be this should it be? I mean, we, we're, we're hair splitting over the tiny things while life is rushing by and dragging us into a new place that we may not want to be thank you thank you gabriel what does it what, what does that uh, idea of an imagination age mean to you you know it's um for for all of this the imagination is is a critical element of uh being able to make progress so 
so much of what we do, and this is this was one of the things that connected Rita and I sort of initially was was this idea that you know the um, the, the meeting point was the 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 role that imagination and creativity have to play in in any human pursuit that's um, that's at the boundary of knowledge or creation, right? That's as true in science and and engineering as it is in in any other discipline. So, and it, these aren't my words. I mean, Einstein was the one that that said, you know, that that imagination was essentially trumped everything else when it came to you know being a good scientist, and that's absolutely true. Now, here's the caveat: most of what time is limited and the reality is that we spend a lot of time in systems uh, hierarchies bureaucracies that um uh just sort of human stuff right you know what i mean day-to-day -day stuff that 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 limits our ability you know for periods of creativity and, and really applying imagination in the way that it should be for um the the, the kinds of things you know things i do for my day job right and so this idea of the of, of imagination and the imagination age as being a, a a way of thinking and approaching what you want to do it's not a free-for-all it's intended to be disciplined imagination right you know and, and so you can actually make progress in what you want to do and it doesn't just apply to science and technology uh it could be any pursuit that you want to you know that an individual wants to pursue so um, it's 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 the critical component, really. Thank you, thank you. And Rita, I've I've saw you quoted as saying, we need to make sure we're telling ourselves stories worth believing and fighting for in order to ensure survival. For that, imagination needs to be focused like a beam of sun coming through a prism, which is beautiful. What are the kinds of stories that we need to be telling ourselves today, and what is the need that 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 stories address and the gap that they fill? Why do we need to become better at, at telling good stories? Stories is a topic I can I can talk about. You know, I have it, it's a it's an encompassing it's an encompassing topic. What makes a great story? There are the stories we tell ourselves. There are the stories that um, we tell each other and give us a sense of belonging um, to a group. And we're living in a time where our emotions are being used against us because it's so easy to whip people into a lather of, of anger and, and um, you know, polarized strong emotion. And we're spinning our wheels. Um, at the same time, I, I, I think of stories in relation to time. What are we trying to accomplish? And then how do we accelerate progress toward those goals? So, you know, as Gabe is saying, there's there's a lot of bureaucracy and human stuff that we have to deal with. So what makes a great story, if, if you're reading a story about um, someone who's already amazing, doing amazing things, you're bored already, right? You, you want a story about someone who's trying, someone who has obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. There's a, a great framework um, by Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, right? He studied mythologies and, and cultural systems from all around the world and came out with this framework around what makes a great story. And there's a moment where a person crosses a threshold, 
you know, an ordinary person in the ordinary world crosses a threshold into the extraordinary world. And they don't want to, they're scared, but they do because they have someone who gives them the courage to do it and the belief that they can, right? So it's it's an ongoing quest of obstacles and how we overcome those obstacles. I think one of the dangers of the time we live in, um, especially with social media, is that it's very easy to mistake words for action. And people feel like because they stated their opinion about something um, that they did something. And I think we really need to get back to the notion that, you know, Gabe and I talk about this a lot. There's chaos and there's constraints in life. The constraints give you an opportunity for creativity. Um, They're not magically going to disappear because they make you angry. You have to treat them as real constraints. And that's the platform for creativity. And then there's always chaos in life and how we navigate through chaos is how we grow as people in a sense. It's like the sharpening stone for a knife or a fire for making a sword. So I think we need to get back to the notion that life's not easy, it's it's hard and how we work together to tell ourselves better stories. Those stories are focused on overcoming obstacles, not focusing on the obstacles themselves as the reason why we can't make progress. The obstacles are perpetual. They're always going to be there. Yeah, because because you you wrote as well about um, that our brains run the risk of getting hijacked by sticky polarizing narratives that work to counter our survival as as individuals and as a species. You know, it's how how the stories that we tell so often get used against us as well. We get mesmerized by those things, and I think if we focus instead on things that light us up, we would make progress faster. If we focus on things that um, we can't control that infuriate us. We're always going to be angry and it hijacks our progress. Mm. Gabriel, what's your sense of what's the role of storytelling in all of this? Yeah, I mean, they're they're a tool, right? And and to Rita's point, I mean, the, they're a tool that allow you to imagine a path or what progress could be. If we're not allowed to use it as a tool, you know, if uh, then we run the risk of of not taking chances in life right so you know the the you know the idea that nowadays everything that you say and do is potentially public you know or scrutinized or um, to a degree that it just <clears throat> it just takes away your appetite to 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 try things to to explore things to to argue, right? You know, to debate, and and so stories are a tool. They're a great tool, right? Being able to sort of to imagine the endpoint and then how would you work back from that is 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 a critical part of that of that progression. You know, to a degree, how we use stories as a tool is becoming much much more internalized. It it, it almost has to be right because um, it's just the world that we live in, and and so going back to a point that Rita made it early on in, in the conversation, if you if, if the only thing you can do is internalize it, then it, it starts to limit your ability to interact with other humans, right? Kind of that, that human connection. And I don't think that's a good thing. I've also spent the last eight years, you know, focusing on, um, you know, in addition to Science House in my copious spare time, writing um, a book that's historical fiction. And it's been a, it's just an extremely interesting process of what it means to tell a story because there's the story you want to tell, but, but are you, are you doing it for yourself? That's a diary. You know, I, I, I haven't been writing a diary for the last eight years. Right. So I've had to learn over the past eight years, how to <clears throat> pull together 
the story I want to tell with the story that a reader might want to read, because ultimately a book is alone with someone else's imagination. And unlike other art forms that unfold in real time, once you write a book, every person who reads it is alone with it at some point. And there's a magic that happens. It's your brain and what it produced and then their brain and how they're interpreting it. And that person, talk about a time travel experiment, that person's brain is in sync with a brain state of yours that went over eight years of time, right? Synthesizing that. And so Gabe and I now are are working on an experiment with storytelling actually, where we just, yesterday I mapped out, um, you know, a a format for a story where we're going to try to tell. And to us, it's an experiment as well, because if I can start, if we can start together with a structure as opposed to me starting completely wild, no idea where I was going to end up. I don't think it'll take us eight years, right? So there's also a formula to storytelling and we don't wanna believe that art is formulaic at all. And I, and I, this is another whole topic, but there, there is a formula, right? There, there's a way to get people invested in a story and a way to deliver information. And I, and I think if you can master that skill, um, it opens up a lot of doors for getting out information like Gabe's Forbes pieces. Um, he writes about, you know, um, innovators and thinkers and the brain, and he's really great at contextualizing complex scientific information for a person who isn't a mathematician or a scientist to get excited about things like how your eye works or how your brain works or how we store information. Right. So there's a, there's a skill in that. And I, I believe it's one of the fundamental skills of the imagination age is storytelling. Fantastic. And I'd, I'd love to know how you would both uh, evaluate the state of health of our collective imagination in 2021. As we stand on the edge of this precipice of the climate and ecological emergency, as scientists tell us we need to get to actual zero carbon within sort of 15, 20 years. Our task is to really reimagine so many aspects of our lives and to do that really, really fast. Is our collective imagination up to the task? And if not, why not? Gabriel? I'd like to think so. I'm a, I'm a bit of an optimist in that sense, right? Um, you know, I think that that collectively, the way people think when you bring them together sort of in the right environment does become productive, right? And, and and people can work together and use their imagination towards problem solving, whatever that problem may be. I, I'm not quite sure what it is, if it's the, the the mediums that currently exist around social media and, and the way that they can be manipulated and controlled at times that, that sort of push people apart. You know, I've, I've had some interesting conversations with folks that just think about different things differently. And every time I have a conversation with someone, it could be someone I disagree with. And, and, but, but as long as I can get them face to face in front of me and, and have a conversation or, or even a, 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 in a, in a small group setting, the dynamics is so different than, than what we, perceive human social interactions to be these days, which is primarily online and and via social media platforms, right? It's just a different human dynamics. So I'd like to believe that people definitely have the capability despite differing opinions. I mean, that's that's a healthy thing. Uh, and, And I think what we're getting wrong is the approach, is the way that we're that that we're doing it. 
but that that people inherently are creative and imaginative and have good ideas. It's it's just a little bit sort of the artificial nature of how what we're calling human interactions and connections are. Um, so it's it, that may be kind of funny coming from someone like me, right? Who's kind of pushing the boundaries of science and technology. But but the one thing that I truly realize is that a lot of those technologies they they have certain purposes and they're just not good at other things and this may be one of them thank you thank you rita what's what's the state of health of our shared imagination in 2021 i think this goes back to pace again i think we have grown so accustomed to the chaos of the pace of everything um, and one thing I've noticed, you know, at Science House, um, our main product is called Model Meetings, and we work with organizations to help them um, apply a process of learning, innovation, commitment, and alignment to their work. And that requires space and time to think. And I'm often taken aback by how freaked out people get by the, by the thought of having unstructured time on their calendar. As soon as everyone complains about being back to back in meetings and having to go do this and go do that and go do this, the minute you give people, okay, here's three hours where you don't have anything you have to do, but think, what are you going to do with it? People get very nervous about that. So I think in some ways, the structured time, and this is a deeper conversation about why do we feel compelled to fill every minute? And I think it probably has something to do with the way we process life and death, but that's a larger conversation. I think imagination needs to be applied to that. And that's deeply related to climate change. We, you know, can't deny we live um, in the United States in a, in a country where a large portion of the country believes that death is just the beginning, right? You, you know, you, 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 you are going to have everlasting bliss. Um, and, and that's fine. And, and we have, you know, religious freedom and, it, and it's, and it's fine to believe that. But, but if it influences our policy, for example, about how we, how we treat life on earth, then we start to get into some areas now, uh, you know, areas of concern. So how do we, the reason I bring this up is not to be like polarizing about, you know, religion versus science. I don't see them as mutually exclusive, but more to say, when you have competing ideas, how do you contextualize them into a policy that actually makes sense for the most people? And, and the thing you need to understand in order to do that is what is your goal? So is our goal to, to keep as many people alive on planet Earth as possible forever? Is our goal to continue to evolve different innovations in different places in order to deal with the way climate change manifests? So for example, droughts and forest fires are a very different manifestation than flooding, right? So in the past year, you know, Gabe is on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast. We've had, uh, you know, <laughs> fires, droughts, floods, um, you know, I, I can't get dahlias to bloom on my roof because it's too hot in the summer. It's end of October right now. And my garden looks like it's the middle of July. So so these things are happening now. So, so I think the most important thing is to stop and slow down to speed up, which sounds very counterintuitive, but I do believe taking the time to take a breath and learn and pick a few, innovate, you know, uh, pick a few focus areas and then pursue them vigorously, regardless of the disagreements under the surface. Because right now we spend all of our time arguing about the disagreements. And like Gabe is saying, very often when you get people face to face, no matter how differently they perceive the world and believe, you can come to a conclusion that makes sense, right? Depending on what your goals are. So I think we need to slow down to speed up. We need to get serious about learning and innovation, make some decisions, firm decisions about what we are actually trying to accomplish, 
And then we need to align to that. And we need to do it in that order. Thank you. Fantastic. So where in 2021 do you see the seeds of an imagination age? Where is it already emerging? Can you point us to the indicators that this is possible and or already happening? Rita? I do agree with Gabe that there are so many creative and imaginative people doing such incredible work. And I'm very um, heartened by the science that I see taking place. I I agree with Gabe also that um, technology is agnostic. It's what we do with it. But because of, for example, I read an article the other day about, um, I think it was in the New York Times, a woman who had breast cancer and expected to have a long, you know, regimen of chemotherapy and found out, in fact, she didn't have to because technology has advanced sufficiently that a lot of the cancer treatments that are available are not as, um, you know, overbearing as they used to be, for example, right? So their progress is being made in different domains in different ways. So the, the real question is, will there eventually be a snowball effect where the cost of things like healthcare housing, food, environmental mitigations comes down sufficiently to enable us to capitalize on that. I think that's possible and we haven't hit that acceleration point yet, but I do feel optimistic because I'm seeing progress in so many different areas, particularly with pure science research um, and the arts as well. So I think if we keep, if we have, if we keep going with enough people doing enough work fast enough, we, we have a very good chance of catching up with ourselves eventually. And that's the story of humanity. And the example I always use is we practically drove whales extinct going after their blubber before we started using kerosene, you know, for energy. We, we have that way as humans where we come in at the zero hour and pull one out. And so the question just remains, can we keep doing that? Because we're, we're facing down the road of evolution or extinction and, and we keep narrowly hitting the the evolution and and path and i hope that we can keep doing that gabriel any any sense of that where do we see the seeds of an imagination age today so 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 despite you know all these kind of heavy topics and and things that are happening around us it, i i i i see it almost every day in in just the work that's taking place and uh, in uh, uh in universities despite the you know, despite the bureaucracy and the time sinks and everything, you know, the, the, um, you know, I see it when we, when we have a group of grad students and postdocs in, in, in our conference room around a whiteboard, and it's just sort of the free flow of, of, of pure ideas around the, one of the coolest things is watching people struggle with boundary knowledge, right? When, when you kind of get to the edge of what's known and what's understood, there's no guidebook. There's no, you know, there's, there's the, the path forward isn't clear and you're, you're prioritizing ideas and, and ways of approaching a problem. And, and, and that, that is truly imagination in its purest form, right? You know, in our context, we do it when we think about how the brain works and, you know, what we need to do when the brain doesn't work and in certain, you know, diseases and stuff, right? And, um, and, and in math and things like that, we apply a lot of math to studying the brain. And so I think it's happening every day. Again, it's, it's happening every day all over the world. And that's just one, one tiny, tiny little, 
you know, piece of it, the, the, the piece that I happen to be exposed to. But I do think it's happening every day. And, and if we can come together, like if we can, you know, if we can kind of harness that, you know, sort of along the lines of what Rita was saying earlier, I think we'll be okay in the end. And thank you. And, and Rita, oh, sorry, Rita, did you want to come in there? Yeah, I, I just want to echo what Gabe is saying. I mean, I see it every day at Science House too with our clients. And it's, you know, again, there's a there's a public opinion about what what is big tech, right? We think of you know Facebook and Twitter and Microsoft and Amazon and, and Google, but there are tons of companies doing incredible work. And you know, during the pandemic, for example, I mean, one of our biggest clients at Science House is one of the world's biggest uh, logistics companies that delivers packages. And um, working with them to see how much math and technology and just sheer human work and ingenuity goes in. I mean, this is, if you think about the planet, packages are a layer on the planet, right? There are boats and planes and, and, just, you know, freight. And, and once you start getting under the hood of the complexity, and, and our job is to help them make that complexity find some sort of order and, and help keep it moving so that people actually enjoy the work, the, the math and the technology that goes on, there are a lot of people working really, really hard and their stories are not being equally told to the stories of destruction. So it goes back to your to your question about storytelling, you know, we we gravitate toward stories about anger and you know things that make us upset, and and so we share those stories. But there are so many people working so hard to make the world better right now, and I feel optimistic because of the effort that that I see every day being made. Thank you. And you you mentioned when you were speaking earlier, where you said that you felt like the imagination had two sort of stages and that there was what the first part ran up to the beginning of the of the pandemic mm-hmm. what so what impact has has the the pandemic had on our imagination how, how how has it shifted how has it changed the nature of what an imagination age would be why does it represent a kind of a, a fracture in that way it interrupted the status quo in a tremendous way so we were kind of in a way, sleepwalking through our habits up until the pandemic struck, each of us in different ways. Not This isn't a monolith. Everyone is going about their lives, doing what they had to do. And everyone's life was interrupted um, in different ways, in different degrees, in different places. And it forced us all to look at our lives and question what is essential, what is non-essential, and are we educating people properly? Um, you know, we had plenty of time to, to slowly develop some of the innovations that would have helped us, for example, getting Wi-Fi um, sufficiently you know, penetrated so that kids could learn from home or work from home, those sorts of things. But we didn't, right? Because again, humanity is, you know, but imagine if this had happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, so I think in the pandemic, we have really learned the value of connecting on a deeper level with people instead of having such superficial interactions. To me, that is the one positive 
um, aspect of the entire pandemic is the awareness that we now have of the preciousness of connecting on a deep level. Um, obviously, we can't all connect with everyone on a deep level, but I think everyone is aware that everyone's going through their own stuff. And before it was much easier to be superficial with people. So I think that depth of connection, wherever we can find it, however we can find it, um, we need to just, you know, I like to say, you know, keep your hand cupped around the flame because um, what is the point of working really hard to make sure climate change doesn't destroy humanity, right? It's because we're human and because we want to continue contributing to that ongoing ability for people to connect with each other and live on this platform of Earth. Gabriel, what's your sense of, of how, how COVID has impacted our ability to move towards an imagination age? It's a, you know, it's a good question, right? The, the, on, on the one hand, for, for some people, it's given them more time Right and and more ability to connect. You know, the way we is uh, suggesting, and um, and that's a good thing. And then on the other, it for others, it certainly probably has stagnated it. You know, uh, just kind of reality of life and and what the lockdowns and pandemic have. You know, just day to day stuff is uh, probably not something that they that those individuals have been had the luxury to be able to to do because they've had you know sort of day to day things. So. It's uh, definitely been a disruptive force. And again, we we've seen it across every industry, including you know academia, for sure. And um, I'm not entirely sure what the impact of that will be. Has it set things back, or has it actually catalyzed things in a certain way? But I think even for the people who, and I, I completely agree, even for the people who have been. I mean, there's also people who are extremely isolated right now, but it still puts a fine point on the value of human connection. Even, even for the people who have been isolated and have had tragically bad outcomes, and there are a lot of people in that category, one of the positives we're seeing out of this is the need for the workforce to have more control, for example, over the way work gets done. And um, that is deeply related to, to, to isolation that people are experiencing and the need to get through a day, right? A lot of people are in caregiving roles um, and need more flexibility, for example. But I think that some of the bad outcomes of the pandemic put a fine point on that as well. So while I wouldn't say that the pandemic gave people positive outcomes, as a society, it should give us a heightened awareness of, of how to contextualize that dynamic moving forward. So if people are listening to this and thinking that living through an imagination age sounds like a most enticing uh, prospect, what thoughts might you have for them for how they and the communities around them might start to bring that into being? Uh, what can we do now to, to sort of start to trigger the, get the push going towards that? Uh, Rita? Imagination isn't necessarily an inherently positive um, thing, right? Uh, there's also dark imagination and we see a lot of that every day. Um, so I think it's really important if one wants to go down the road of really being a practitioner of imagination, to see imagination as an emergent outcome of, of other factors, including healing mentally and, and sleeping and taking care of yourself and, you know, to whatever extent you're able to. And I really do believe as a society, we need to get better at caregiving in general. I think we, we leave people too much on their own uh, to figure that out. And, and here in the United States, we're definitely seeing the impact of that uh, mentality and it's not good. So I think um, having, having imagination is the ability to, 
um, conjure different realities. And, and there's a certain kind of math to it too, right? Certain outcomes are statistically unlikely. And so you don't really want to put a huge amount of energy into them. Although once in a while, those anomalous things could happen. So, you know, there's a balancing act there. I think it requires a lot of, um, to, to do it well, a lot of ability, a lot of emotional maturity, again, to understand that systems are just not set up to foster it. And so a lot of it is trying to navigate those systems in order to make things real. Um, and also, as Gabe was saying, not everybody has the same luxury, I think is a good word, and time to do this. And so I think if you're in a position where you do have the time to do it, it's sort of an obligation. It's like a civic obligation to get better at it and to work as hard as you can to influence policies that make sense for more people. I think that is a civic obligation. Yeah, I mean, the the there's this... Uh constant struggle, right? Sort of this balance that I think individuals have to reach sort of on their own of digging deeper into what they normally do and what, you know, their job and, and the day-to-day things and um, versus <clears throat> taking the time if you have it. And, and that's the tough part is, fun, you know, to, to, to explore, right? To read broadly, you know, read things that you, you know, outside of your comfort zone to consider different points of view and arguments. And, you know, that, 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 that broadness uh, and how it can shape sort of your own individual ability to, to do whatever it is that you do it takes time. It takes effort, but, but I would argue is, is, is critical sort of to that creative pursuit right you know and and that's a tricky balance i mean admittedly especially again in 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 the world that we live in today where uh you know like rita was saying you know people have a few hours free on their calendar and they you know they and it stresses them out right because you don't and it's true i mean it's it's like a badge of honor the more meetings you have right the more you want to you know you people love saying oh yeah i'm back to back all day right and so i think being able to to find time to broaden your perspective is, is, is critical to a healthy imagination. And I think also questioning assumptions. And and that's where I think art and science both equal, equally interest me. And they both equally interest me because a great artist and a great scientist both are really good at questioning assumptions. And it seems like such a basic um, thing, but so many of the boundaries we perceive are illusions to begin with. And when we start poking at them and realizing you have a lot more room to play than you think you do. And I think any conversation about imagination needs to have the word play front and center. You know, we think of play as something that children do until they um, graduate into the mind numbing reality of adult bureaucracy and hierarchy. Um, in fact, children are, are learning how to, connect with each other to solve problems. And when you play with children at their level, their games are pretty hardcore. Like they're, they're not, you know, light little games. Usually they're, they're really trying to get somewhere with their brains and they're practicing how they are in the world with fresh eyes. And there's no shame in adults starting over with beginner's mind, no matter how far you think you've come as an expert in any domain to throw up your hands once in a while and question the assumptions that got you to, to where you are, I think is a healthy aspect of imagination. 
Brilliant. What a beautiful place to, to draw things to a close. Thank you both so much for your for your time today and for your wisdom and uh, and for joining us here at From What Is To What Next. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks to Rita and to Gabriel and to you for listening and perhaps subscribing and to Ben Adicott, the Michelangelo of podcasts, whose delicate sculpting and artistic eye make these podcasts sound as good as they do. And do let us know what you thought of this podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you.